Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. As we continue on the Original Guide to Men's Health to explore the interface of biotechnology and clinical medicine, we are going to be meeting with Dr. Aaron Sridhar. Dr. Sridhar is a cardiac electrophysiologist and a specialist in heart rhythm disorders at the University of Washington. He is an assistant professor in the Division of Cardiology. Dr. Sridhar sees patients with both rapid and slow heart rhythms, as well as patients with a risk of sudden cardiac death. He also is an innovator and has developed technology which is far-reaching. It is our pleasure to have Dr. Aaron Sridhar spend a little bit of time with us about his forthcoming interventions, innovations, and give us a little background into cardiac electrophysiology. Welcome, Dr. Sridhar. Thanks, Richard, for having me. First of all, I think for listeners, if you would just give a little explanation about what cardiac electrophysiology is and cardiac arrhythmias. Some people have them and are aware of them, but other people don't. So why don't you give a little background into cardiac electrophysiology and cardiac arrhythmias? Let's talk about electrophysiology first. So cardiac electrophysiology is a field which deals with cardiac arrhythmias. As you know, like a heart is basically a mechanical pump, which pumps the blood out to different organs in the body. But the pumping rate and the rhythm is basically like defined by the electrical system of the heart. So any doctors who deal with the electrical system of the heart are called cardiac electrophysiologists. I'm one of the cardiac electrophysiologists at University of Washington in Seattle. And what we do is we study patients who have cardiac arrhythmias and we provide uh, invasive and non-invasive treatment plans for arrhythmias. Like we treat them with medications and then when the medications are not optimal, we take them in for procedures to fix their electrical system by different means. So sometimes this is by pacemakers, sometimes this is by defibrillators, and sometimes this is by procedures called as cardiac ablations. So we perform these in University of Washington electrophysiology labs. So someone might find that they have a cardiac arrhythmia generally by how? What kind of symptoms would they have? And I know it's varied from a cardiac standstill and arrest to others, but just generally go through a few scenarios where somebody might notice that something's irregular. Yes. So as you correctly mentioned, there is a wide spectrum of symptoms that people can experience when they have cardiac arrhythmias. 
Some of them are very mild, like people can have some extra beats or some thumps in their chest, which they perceive as extra beat or uh, sometimes patients describe it as a skip beat. So they have a couple of skip beats occasionally during the day that is usually caused by a particular problem in the heart, which is called as premature atrial complexes or premature ventricular complexes. When these happen occasionally or infrequently, they're not that big of a deal, but you can have something called sustained arrhythmias. When people experience sustained palpitations for a few minutes or a few hours, it could be a supraventricular arrhythmia. There are different types of supraventricular arrhythmias, but the most common one that people know of is atrial fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation is an arrhythmia of the heart where heart goes both fast as well as irregular. And patients often describe it as a vague feeling of flopping in the chest or a fluttering or palpitations. Some of the other symptoms are like tiredness and feeling fatigued all the time because their heart is so irregular. Although it is pumping blood, it is not pumping blood in a regular fashion and they feel fatigued by it. Some of the more serious arrhythmias could have a much more serious consequence, like people can be passing out and then we test them and we find out that it's a heart arrhythmia, that it is making them pass out. And sometimes people have something called as a cardiac arrest. So that is one of the worst arrhythmias that people can have. And this is when people go into a sudden cardiac arrest where they collapse and they need defibrillation or they need to be shocked out of this rhythm or they need CPR and things like that. Yeah, that's where CPR and in Seattle, where we, uh, I think, led the nation in getting people trained in bystander CPR. Absolutely. Seattle has one of the best rescue rates for cardiac arrest patients. Like even today, Seattle does a really good job of uh, teaching its people bystander CPR. And the bystander CPR survival rates are much higher compared to any other city in the country. And so I'll just make a pitch to our listeners. If you haven't been trained in bystander CPR, please take a course. It's not difficult. It's not a long course. And you really could save somebody's life. So go on a bit more about just generally what conditions might contribute to somebody having an arrhythmia. I know that thyroid disorders and medication. So go ahead. Yeah, there are a lot of different conditions that can lead to cardiac arrhythmias. So the most common things, as you say, are thyroid disorders or certain types of other endocrine disorders. But you can also have arrhythmias which result from a prior heart attack, for example. Like if you've had a prior heart failure or a heart attack or a prior heart surgery, these can lead to different types of arrhythmias. And Sometimes in uh, some people, even like some dietary agents can cause arrhythmias. Like one of the most common culprits is coffee. Like excess caffeine intake can lead to arrhythmias and excess alcohol can lead to arrhythmias. So alcohol-induced atrial fibrillation is very well described. And people, especially college students who go on a binge drinking weekend, end up with a Monday morning arrhythmia. That is usually atrial fibrillation. So generally, and we're leading to some of your research, some would identify, I don't feel well, they'd go to their doctor or an emergency room or urgent care, depending on the severity of the problem. And by the way, somebody could just take their pulse. And if it's very, very slow, or if it's irregular, that would be a sign that they should go seek attention. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I would phrase that with a bit of caution. Like you can have slow heart rates, but still be completely normal. And we see that in athletes quite often because they have trained their heart to perform at an extremely high level of functioning and they could have a normally slow heart rate. 
So not every slow heart rate or fast heart rate is pathologic or needs medical attention. But if you're in doubt, if something is different compared to your regular pattern, yes, it's, you should seek medical attention. Yeah, or if you're lightheaded or you're not feeling well, if there's other symptoms associated with it. So somebody goes to, like I said, urgent care or an emergency room or their doctor's office, it's diagnosed primarily through an EKG first? That's right. So most of the times arrhythmias are diagnosed by a ECG at a doctor's office. And sometimes we need extended monitoring, like and we send them home with ECG machines and they wear that for 24 hours, 48 hours, or sometimes even a week or two to diagnose an arrhythmia. And so then corrective measures can be, like you said, medications. If the medications don't work, there are some interventions to correct the arrhythmia. That's right. Depending on what arrhythmia we find, we can treat them with different types of interventions. And that could be medications, or in some cases, it's a pacemaker or a defibrillator or some kind of a cardiac ablation procedure. So now this leads us to your really exciting, innovative research. Why don't you go through, first of all, the use of the speaker? I believe it was an Alexa speaker or? Yeah, so we tested it with an Alexa speaker, but the concept should work with any smart speaker. So what we did was we converted a smart speaker into heart rhythm monitoring device. And the way we did that was, like I should say, like we collaborated with our computer science engineers in UWCS department. There is one of my collaborators, Dr. Sham Golakota, who was the primary investigator in this research from the computer science standpoint. So what we did was we converted the smart speaker into a sonar device, a short-range sonar. Basically, a smart speaker is a set of speakers and a microphone array. So in a simplistic fashion, if you think about a smart speaker, it has three components. It has a set of speakers, it has a set of microphones, and it has a processing unit inside a smart speaker. So the speakers can emit audible sounds, but they can also emit inaudible sounds. So we took this inaudible sound frequency, which is between 18 to 25 kilohertz, and we then emit a series of beeps, which are not audible to an adult uh, human ear. And these beeps go on to the surface of the chest of the person sitting in front of it, and then gets reflected back and is received by the microphone array. And using this, this series of beeps as a sonar device, we then process it to figure out the chest movement. And from the chest movement, we can figure out what is the breathing pattern of the patient, as well as we can, once we subtract the breathing pattern, we also get the heart pattern, heart motion pattern from the chest. So using this, you can tell how many times the heart is beating in the chest. What is the pattern of the heartbeat? Is it regular or irregular? And that is what we try to achieve with a smart speaker. The concept being that the idea being that like at some point patients can just sit in front of a smart speaker and get a good quick diagnostic test to see if their heart rhythm is normal today or not without having to go to a hospital and get an ECG. I have to caution here by saying that this is pure research at this point and we have not released it for patient use because we need to validate this a lot more before we release it. That is the ultimate idea. So this is a standard speaker. You didn't tweak the microphone other than having induced uh, the reproduction of an inaudible sound. The uh, patient would sit in front of the speaker and the sound wave bounces off the chest and there is enough chest movement in arrhythmia or normal heart rate to pick up the bounced sound wave. That's right, yeah. 
if you look at the respiratory motion of the chest, it is in the order of centimeters and it's about five to 10 centimeter displacement of the chest each time we take a breath in and breath out. And this was previously shown by the same group where they showed that like they can use this smart speaker to perceive the respiratory rate and pattern. Our goal was to do the same thing for heartbeat motion and heartbeat motion on the chest is in the order of a few millimeters. It's about two to five millimeters actually. Each time the heart beats, the chest moves by two to five millimeters. So we had to perceive that using a smart speaker sonar device. And to do that, we had to do a lot of signal processing and like some machine learning algorithms to, to basically learn the respiratory pattern, subtract it to learn the clothing motion and subtract that. And we penalize the algorithm to identify any of the, any random or abrupt motion that is not physiologic, the algorithm would ignore that. So that is how it was designed. So it can finally perceive the heart rate motion. So this was uh, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, an algorithm to be able to find what is a normal rhythm versus an abnormal rhythm. Right. So it was an adaptive learning algorithm to identify heartbeats. The next step for that would be to learn what is a normal rhythm and an abnormal rhythm. And once you identify the heartbeats, determine whether it's a normal or a normal algorithm, those algorithms have already been created, so previously created. So we did not have to do that. What we had to do was we had to create a system that can actually learn what heartbeat looks like on the chest and teach it to the smart speaker so it can recognize that. And with the ability to identify you know, an abnormal rhythm in your research, you proof of concept was done by using standard monitoring. So you could actually show what you were picking up was indeed a true arrhythmia. So you mentioned the Holter monitor or something that you can actually currently use that picks up an EKG that somebody wears for a time. And so proof of concept was done. That is very exciting. What else have you looked at as far as the sort of digital health technology and arrhythmia care? Yeah, so we have done a few other projects where we look at mobile ECGs or handheld ECG machines and see if we can use it for arrhythmia care and diagnosis. One of my primary research interests is to try to use mobile devices and mobile digital health devices, which are easily available to the consumer and maximize the information that we gain from these devices to actually help in clinical arrhythmia care. So Richard, as you know, like there are a lot of devices now in the market, a live core device or an Apple watch device, which can actually record an ECG. Oftentimes, these ECGs cannot be used for clinical applicability because the algorithms inbuilt in these devices is pretty minimal. Like Apple Watch now can identify atrial fibrillation versus a normal rhythm, but it, when it comes to other rhythms, it fails. So like it doesn't recognize PVCs, for example. It doesn't recognize some of the other arrhythmias. So our research goes into maximizing the information gained from these devices and see how we can use it for better care of arrhythmia patients. So the AliveCore is another commercial device where you put your fingertips and it communicates to your smartphone and you get an EKG. So I imagine there'll be more and more technology of this sort, these wearable devices that you can then use in as adaptive technology to then transmit to your physician. I know that the Apple Watch goes to your health app. It's one of the things on the watch app and you can actually then download that into your electronic medical record for your physician to review. That's right. It's so exciting. Like I get so many 
Apple Watch recordings for my patients, it's really taken over in the last couple of years, I should say, like when patients were having difficulty coming and seeing us in the clinics, they would simply get an ECG from the Apple Watch and they would scan it and send it to the physician. And then we would take a look at the ECG and say, hey, you know, you're doing fine. Like you just don't need to come into the hospital today. So it has proven to be such a useful tool for many of our patients who are either not able to make it to the hospital are afraid of coming to the hospital because of COVID or basically just for convenience, patient convenience too. We have been using this device as tool to help our patients. So even uh, home monitoring blood pressure devices are now Bluetooth to your phone and you can capture your recordings. And so you have them all nicely displayed for your physicians when they want to review what your blood pressures have been running. Any other devices you're familiar with that are exciting? Yeah, so Apple Watch is one. There is a Fitbit Sense device, which also has an ECG app on it. That is the second one. And there is a Huawei Watch, which was also tested over hundreds and thousands of patients. Uh, they found that this was a useful tool to diagnose arrhythmia. So these are the three major studies, Apple Watch study, Huawei Watch study, and Fitbit. All three of them showed that they have the ability to identify atrial fibrillation using basically a consumer device. Other than that, like we know that Google and Amazon have these smart speakers, which have the human or body motion sensing abilities, so which helps. Then there are devices in the market which identify sleep patterns, and they can identify if a patient has like sleep apnea or like obstructive sleep apnea, which can in turn lead to other disorders like pulmonary lung disorders and heart disorders. So there are devices in the market which can identify those. And as you know, like there are like lots of devices in the market now, which are diabetes, which help in the management of diabetes. So there are continuous sugar monitoring devices and like intermittent sugar monitoring devices, which measure the blood sugar levels and help the patients with either known diabetes or screening for diabetes. So it's an exciting time. Like there are lots of devices coming up in the market which can help with the health of a patient, regardless of what organ it is, like heart, yes, sure. But like there are devices which monitor blood pressure, diabetes, and there are devices which monitor sleep apnea, lung disorders. And many of these devices are actually like consumer available, like they are available to the lay consumer and are not considered medical devices. So we have actually had prior episodes of this podcast with uh, emphasis on sleep apnea and on metabolic endocrine diseases. So our listeners can go to the prior episodes and find the episode of interest. Should they not really understand what sleep apnea is all about, we had a very good interview on that and a very good interview on metabolic endocrine diseases. So we always like to impart information. I know that you had a publication in Nature believe it was uh, March 6, 2021 in Nature Magazine on the smart speaker research? Yes, like we had a publication in Nature last year, which was basically describing the concept that we were talking about using smart speakers and trying to identify heart rhythm patterns using smart speakers. Any um, relevant areas that people could go for further information about arrhythmias? Do you have anything you like to have patients go to should they have questions? Yes, they can visit our UW Medicine website, cardiac electrophysiology website, or the arrhythmia disorders, where we list out all the common symptoms and what kind of care to seek and who to reach out to. There are also websites 
which are publicly available. Like there is a very popular website called stopafib.org. Say that again. It's stopafib.org. Stopafib.org. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, so it's a very popular patient website for patients with atrial fibrillation. So it has a lot of good information about atrial fibrillation disease in general, how to diagnose it, how to screen for it, how to manage it, and what are the resources for interventions, and basically what to expect after an ablation procedure, a lot of good information like that. Yeah, so it's one of the more popular websites that I refer my patients to. Yes, for those of us in medicine, we use AFib a lot instead of atrial fibrillation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Anything else you'd like to wrap up with as far as other information? One thing I would highlight, Richard, is like this is an exciting time to be like uh, for as far as digital health is concerned. Like there are a lot of resources that are coming up where we are trying to use digital health for very innovative care. So like one of our research projects actually looks at diagnosing atrial fibrillation before it happens using LiveCore. So this is a way to predict atrial fibrillation even before they occur. And this paper is under review, but once it comes out, we can talk more about it. The other thing I wanted to mention is that the digital health resources that we have currently have transformed the way we do research. We have been more inclusive and we have been fortunate to be able to include more patients for research trials and have more participants and have a more diverse participant group, which would not be possible if not for digital health tools. So we published this last year when we were doing a trial on COVID patients, on patients who could not make it to the hospital. And we showed that we can use digital health tools to conduct completely remote trials. And when we do that, it actually increases the access of patients who would otherwise not be able to participate. And, you know, like we create a better diverse group of participants and there is a representation of all patient groups, like people who are living close to the institution where the research is being conducted but also people who live in remote areas, people who do not speak the language, and people who would never be able to come to the trial institution multiple times a week to get their ECGs checked. So these are all things that were big barriers in the past, but these are being surpassed by digital health tools. And that is very exciting because it creates for a more diverse and representative environment for patients as well as research subjects, as well as healthcare in general. Yeah, the uh, telehealth, telemedicine availability has really been so important for everyone, and particularly those who have to usually drive three to four hours to get to a center or maybe live close, but transportation is an issue, and it just isn't possible for them to make multiple visits. They don't drive or don't have a car, or we do have to promote legislation to continue availability for these modalities. So everybody assumes that, well, that just happens. And it is enlightenment of our legislators, both state and national, regarding the importance of telehealth, telemedicine. Well, anything else that you'd like to let everybody know about? I work in Harborview, and many of our patients are patients with access issues. And patients who cannot make it to doctor's appointment because of either transportation issues or issues with like not being able to afford a transport to the hospital or just not being able to make it because they don't have a family member who can bring them to the hospital and they can't drive themselves. So for all these patients, telehealth has been a great resource. And like we are combining telehealth with 
digital health technologies to make like provide care where it was not possible this has really become commonplace in the last couple of years and i'm thankful for the legislations that have made this possible and i hope that these uh, resources continue for our patients well dr aaron sridhar i thank you so much for first of all everything you do as a cardiologist and a electrophysiologist and also for your innovation it just is amazing what is being done and that's why we brought this particular segment forth because many of us have no idea that these things are being developed so thank you for joining us in your time and expertise thank you so much richard for having it is a pleasure talking to you this completes another episode of the original guide to men's health podcast we wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, PhD. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.